Welcome to Season 2 of Grain IQ. I'm your host, Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. And in Season 1 of Grain IQ, we covered the basics of grain marketing. Now, Season 2 dives deeper into the grain marketing concepts that we covered in Season 1. So if you haven't listened to that, we invite you to start there. One of the most frequently asked questions in grain marketing is, when should I sell my grain? If only there was a magic ball to predict the price trends in the future. Hopefully somebody's working on that technology. But up until then, it is important to develop a marketing strategy that works for your operation. In this two-part conversation, Luke Beckman, a grain sales manager with Central Valley Ag Cooperative, is going to walk us through the trends and suggestions for both pre- and post-harvest marketing plans. Luke, as we kick things off today to talk about pre-harvest marketing strategies, tell us about you and your grain marketing experience. Well, thanks, Chad, for having me on. Uh, I'm a northeast Nebraska farm kid. I grew up in Elgin, Nebraska, southern Antelope County, uh, really predominantly irrigated corn and soybean production and a pretty good livestock presence uh, in this part of Nebraska as well. Uh, I went to the University of Nebraska uh, in Lincoln and studied a lot of ag courses, ag economics and agronomy, and started with Central Valley Ag uh, right out of college. So I've really been stationed in Northeast Nebraska my whole life. Um, what CVA asks me to do is to lead our grain origination staff. And so we have a group of uh, 10 people that float around uh, Northeast Nebraska, Northwest Iowa, uh, and they work with producers to help them make better grain marketing decisions. So we're immersed in the grain markets every day. Uh, we also have the grain elevator obligation on the other end of it. So we're really part of the supply chain and merchandising grain from uh, the producer, the farm gate to destinations where it's wanted. Uh, so we're part of that, that supply chain. We're part of uh, growing food for the world. And uh, CBA every day is getting closer to, uh, you know, growing more value added commodities and educating producers on what they can do to grow uh, more food-based products, things like white corn, food-grade corns, um, non-GMOs, those types of things. So exciting to be a part of that, Ex exciting, exciting to be rural. Uh, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of good things happen, and the cooperatives are a really great place to be because it's owned by our, our producers that we serve. Yeah. And, and maybe, Luke, you can expand on that a little bit more in, in how the co-op is a part of the whole process, because, you know, we've talked to people in academia on this podcast before and and how they play a part in educating. And uh, we've talked to some folks in private industry as well. But uh, again, kind of expand on that. What does the cooperative mean to grain production and also grain marketing? Well, the producers that might be listening to this are probably quite familiar with their local cooperative. And what separates a cooperative from maybe a private business is that it is owned by the members that it serves. And I think that's important. In today's world, a lot of the privates in ag, uh, ag is very consolidated, uh, even from uh, an input supplier standpoint, uh, from the grain marketing companies. And so as far as having a local voice, that doesn't exist uh, in private business like it does at the cooperative level. Private business uh, answers to shareholders. And so uh, the cooperative answers to a board of directors, which is voted on by the member owners that it serves. And so really it's the ownership model uh, that makes the cooperative system unique. Uh, and it really keeps uh, the decision making at the local level. 
Uh, and so the cooperative makes decisions and is motivated just a little bit differently uh, than some of the private businesses that we compete against in that we're going to make decisions really for a really long run thought process. Um, an example I can give you is, you know, we invest a lot of money into uh, capital expenditures um, and in the grain business, uh, that would be grain elevators. And uh, some of the investments that the co-op makes are probably investments that a multinational would not make in the grain business. And so we're, we reinvest in a lot of our a lot of our grain elevators, maybe truck house elevators. We've seen multinationals exit the grain business, uh, you know, shuttle loaders, train loaders, uh, grain elevators, truck house elevators, because they, the return on investment is not super high. But the cooperative knows that we're here to serve the farmer. We're here as part of a link in the supply chain. And we need to make that investment because if we don't, nobody's going to be here to serve the producer. And ultimately, if nobody's here and there's not enough players around, the farmer ultimately gets hurt. Uh, so the cooperative is here to service the producer. We think very long run in terms of our value and the, and the role that we play in the supply chain. And then just so we understand kind of the point of view of the cooperative, especially as it relates to grain marketing, you know, how does the co-op approach this? Are you uh, are you using the grain to manufacture and, and add value to? Are, are you selling the grain? Uh, how does the co-op fit into the uh, the path of the grain? That's a great question, Chad. Uh, you know, co-ops all over the United States uh, probably do both of those functions. You know, it probably depends on uh, the feed component of that cooperative. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cooperatives, ours included, that service, um, you know, swine, swine, dairy, cattle, poultry. Uh, so they're going to they're going to uh, process that grain into a feed product and and uh, create a more value added product with you know, the corn and the soybeans that they're that they're buying from the producers, but also a pretty good portion of that just gets merchandised down the line and it goes to different parts of the country. So in Nebraska, we're the furthest west supplier of grain in the Corn Belt. And so a lot of the Nebraska grain that gets loaded on trains in our state at our company, uh, it ends up going to places like California, uh, Utah, Idaho, uh, big, big feeding operations in the West Coast. A lot of it goes down into western Kansas, uh, can go down into Texas, it goes to Mexico. Uh, it goes to the Pacific Northwest and gets put on a, uh, a boat and goes across the sea to, uh, you know, foreign countries. And so uh, the cooperative is doing a little bit of both. Uh, some of that is, you know, a value-added product in the form of feed uh, that gets fed locally. Um, some of that grain gets supplied to local processors, which gets made into, you know, ethanol or gets made into soybean meal and soybean oil. Uh, if you're going to a soy processor, or it's getting put on a train and it's going to end users down the line. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts, Luke. Why is it important even to have a marketing plan? Why should a farmer have a plan to price his or her grain, do you think? It's a business. Chad is is how I would answer that question. Um, there's dollars at risk. You know, a lot of producers uh, borrow money to operate. Not all of them, but you know, a lot of people borrow money to operate. And so there's risk associated with running running a business, even if it is a family farm. You know, you have to make ends meet. So having a plan is important because there's dollars at risk. And uh, without a plan, you know, the market can um, the market doesn't care. <laughs> that sounds harsh, but the market does not care about you. It's cold. It can be cold. And so it's important that you 
uh, are in control of your situation as much as possible. And so it's important that you attack grain marketing with some form of a plan. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the steps that we like to communicate to our producers. But without a plan, you're setting yourself up, you know, for failure. You're going to be a victim of, you know, whatever the market does. Sometimes that can be a good thing, right? If the market just happens to rally, but that works both ways. For every for every winner, there is a loser uh, in the marketplace. And so we encourage producers to uh, do certain things, certain fundamental things that we've seen some of the best grain marketers do, best farmer grain marketers that we work with. There's certain practices that some of these guys uh, and gals have in common that produce good results. And so we try to communicate those and coach our coach our farmer owners on some of those points to help them be more successful. What do you think are the essential elements of any marketing plan? What has to be a part of the marketing plan in in the effort to price the grain that you produce? Great question. Yeah, there's a few steps. Number one is production estimates. Very basic. You know, it's a mix of Acres, what are you going to grow? What's your yield estimate? You probably have an APH, uh, a yield history of some kind for a given farm. Uh, so you should have an idea of what that farm can raise. Uh, in Nebraska, you know, there's a chunk of the production is irrigated, and that's going to give producers more confidence in terms of what they're going to grow. But if not, if you're a dryland grower without irrigation, you know, trust that APH and uh, you know what your what your farms can produce. So number one is you need to know what you're going to grow. Number two you have to dial in your cost of production. And it's a really important part in the process is to know what it's going to cost to grow a bushel of soybeans, bushel of corn, uh, because that's going to give you some confidence on uh, where should I be a seller. So uh, step number two would be cost of production. Third, we would say you need to understand your storage situation, your logistics, and your cash flow. Uh, those are important steps. After we've done the cost of production and we know a break-even, now we need to start thinking about, can I store this crop at home? Does it need to go to town? Uh, what's my cash flow situation like? Um, I'm going to have to move grain. That grain gets turned into cash at some point. And depending on when I have demands on the farm to pay bills, to pay the land note, to pay machinery notes, or to make just investments in the operation, I need to make sure that I've got cash coming in to, to meet those obligations. So you need to understand your cash flow situation. Uh, logistics, uh, important as well in terms of uh, you know, times of the year that grain needs to move. So those three things kind of set us up. Those three give us the confidence on when when we should be making sales and what methods or tools do we use to execute those sales when the time is right. That's a great lead into our the main topic of uh, this podcast, and that is talking about a pre-harvest marketing plan and a post-harvest marketing plan. Uh, again, kind of a 30,000-foot view, other than just the change in the prefix from pre to post. But, I mean, you know, fundamentally and how they're used, what is the difference between a pre-harvest marketing plan and a post-harvest marketing plan? Well, I would say the number one difference is the amount of unknowns associated with pre versus post. Uh, you're making a lot of assumptions uh, in a pre-harvest marketing plan around what am I going to raise, what's it going to cost, and what's you know what what's my yield going to be uh, is a big part of the unknown uh, between pre and post. Uh, the pre-harvest marketing plan is just that. There's a lot more planning involved. Post-harvest comes down to managing more of what you already have on the books and executing sales that you've already created. 
there's a lot of schools of thought, different schools of thought in terms of, uh, you know, marketing before harvest and marketing after. We work with very successful producers who are very aggressive pre-harvest marketers. They'll start marketing a crop two years in advance before they put seed in the ground. There's other producers that won't market that crop until after it's harvested and in the bin. Both producers can be successful at what they do. And what we tell producers is if you've been utilizing one of those two methods, depending on which camp you fall in, and you've been successful at it, consistency is important. Where we, where we find that producers get in trouble is when they flip-flop between the two. Uh, I use 2012 as a really interesting example because it's so extreme. Uh, we had a lot of pre-harvest um, farmer you know, producers, uh, pre-harvest marketers that are aggressive, uh, did not perform as well in 2012 because you had uh, a grain market that took off during the growing season late in the year. We saw our highs in August that year. So any sales that were made you know, December through June uh, for the crop that was to be harvested in the fall of 2012, it didn't feel as good as, as uh, maybe waiting until post-harvest to market that crop. Uh, the worst thing those producers could have done is to switch their strategy in 2013 and become a post-harvest marketer because that's what worked the year before. And so being consistent is an important part of grain marketing. And if you're an aggressive forward marketer pre-harvest, we advise guys to stay in that camp year to year because over the course of 10 years, that strategy is going to average out over a post-harvest strategy as well. Okay. So the big difference, Chad, to kind of get back to what you asked, a big part of it's the planning and the variables. Uh, you don't know what your production is going to be when you're when you're putting the plan part of it together. Maybe in the winter, January, you know, December, January, leading up to you know the spring planting season. Um, that would be a key difference. And you start talking about moving from one to the other, from one season to the next. Uh, just I, I thought to myself, boy, cash flow could be an issue, right? Logistics could be something else. If you're holding last year's crop and trying to pre-market next year's, where are you going to put it? You know, you, you start having challenges just beyond keeping the two crops straight and then trying to market two crops at one time. Correct. And, you know, that certainly happens. That can happen if you're holding on to crop late. We tend to see that behavior more out of producers in dryland scenarios. You know, if they're having a tough summer uh, and their crop's not looking as good, we tend to see that behavior with, with producers just to hold that crop deep into the summer. Or they might even carry it over into the next, into the next crop year because they have the space. Uh, certainly the flat price influences their thought process. You know, if you're in a $8 soybean market, it's easier to probably hold that crop over because the market's pretty well depressed. You know, if you're in a $15 soybean market, the question we probably ask is, why are you carrying soybeans across to the new crop here? Uh, and that really gets into a conversation around carries and inverses and what the cash market's telling you to do, uh, which that can get a little bit complex. And that's why it's good to work with an advisor of some kind in that capacity. But yeah, the logistics piece of it is is really important, and the cash flow is important uh, for the producer. And and to talk about a pre-harvest marketing plan, and that's probably where my passion is. I think if you're going to be uh, somebody who's running a business, you need to be proactive in managing your risk. Once you start purchasing inputs to grow a crop, Chad, you and I know that that process starts really early. It starts it starts in maybe August or September, October, uh, the year or the fall before the spring that you're going to plant that crop. And so you, you're, 
you're creating, as you create a break, even you have to know what it's going to cost to grow that crop. And so if you make a fertilizer decision in September, if you're going to buy your nitrogen, you're going to buy your phosphorus, your potassium for the crop that you're going to grow the next spring. Well, that's a known, that's a known variable in your production cost estimate. And so you can start to build break even. So if you know what it's going to cost and the market is providing you an opportunity to make a profit, you know, our encouragement would be, why not, why not lock a profit in on a portion of your, of your production estimates? Yeah. And, and so that's important. So if you've, if you've got a group of these sales that you've been making um, above your cost of production, you know, that, you know, profitability becomes um, you have a higher degree of certainty that you're going to have a profitable year. So you can execute that way. And he was thinking about, you know, how do you, the early, we're, we're knowing these things earlier and earlier because the other elements of your break even, like your cash rents, uh, your machinery costs, um, you know, cost of living, all of those things that go into a break even, we know those fairly early. And that really does open the door for more or at least earlier opportunities for pre harvest marketing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those, those, uh, those variables or those unknowns when they be, when they no longer become unknowns, but become knowns, it's going to give you more confidence to say, Hey, should I sell $12 soybeans today when my break evens at 10, it's going to be easier for you to pull the trigger if you know that your cost of production is 10. And so we encourage producers and we talk about break evens all the time, uh, so that they can have the confidence to pull the trigger if the market gives you that opportunity. As post-harvest comes into focus, the yield is the variable that we weren't sure about in the spring leading up to harvest or the summer leading up to harvest. You're still speculating, right? You don't know what the, the final yield is going to be. If you're a dry land producer, that's a bigger question mark, right? If you're an irrigated producer, you're going to have more confidence about what that yield might be in the fall. So once we, once we harvest the crop, uh, that production variable uh, is no longer a variable. We, it's an it's a known. It changes from an unknown to a known. And so we know that we harvested, you know, seventy bushel per acre soybeans, and we can take our total cost per acre that we had invested in that crop at that point and divide it by seventy bushels per acre and come up with this is pretty much the break even at this point for the crop that I just grew this year. And that becomes a hard number that you can market around and know that when the market is above that number, you can sell your crop and know that you're going to be profitable. Let's break down a pre-harvest marketing plan a little bit more. Uh, before we talk about the tools and how we track it and, and things like how do we analyze it, what's the mindset or what kind of mind should we be in if we think we're going to use pre-harvest marketing as the way that we want to price bushels? You need to have a... It's really a budget. You know, you're putting a budget together when you're putting that break even together. So you need to have a, a planning and a forecasting mindset. Uh, it's a very business minded type practice. And, you know, we opened earlier talking about what some of those steps would be and production estimates are number one. So put your field plans together. What's your crop, your crop rotation look like? Uh, what am I going to have for soybean acres this coming year? What am I going to have for corn acres this coming year? Uh, attach yields to those acres to come up with, you know, a production number and really best to break it down by the acre so that you can get it down to the bushel. That's a, that's a good practice. So production estimates is number one. We talked about the input side of things. And as you mentioned earlier, Chad, some of those numbers start coming out pretty early 
you know, for a crop that you're going to grow in the spring, the fall leading up to that or the prior fall, you know, you have fertilizer prices and seed and, and chemical and all those things are things that you can know. So as you put those together, you're going to have a break even. So add up all your costs per acre and divide it by your production estimate per acre. You know, if this if this farm, you know, your home quarter consistently grows 75 bushel soybeans and it's going to cost, you know, $900 an acre to raise those soybeans based on the budget that you put together, then 900 divided by 75 tells you you need $12 out of your soybeans to break even. So that's step number one. That gives you confidence to know that this is just what it's going to cost to make things work. Ultimately, you get through that planning process of developing a break-even and you put that budget together. Then the question and the question that farmers ask all the time is when should I, when should I make the sales? So though that gets to be a complex question and that gets into fundamental analysis. What's the supply and demand situation of the market? What's the the longer term trajectory of the type of market that we're in. And that's a question that, you know, gets asked every day and there's a lot of things that go into it, but seasonally seasonals are another part of, of both pre-harvest marketing and post-harvest marketing. But if you're a pre-harvest seller, typically uh, the spring is a good time to be a seller to establish pre-harvest sales, to get those on the books because over the course of time, Ed Usset, I know he's been a guest on this this show before. Ed has a lot of good research on, you know, the timing of sales. And I know he's probably shared that mm-hmm. on this before. Uh, but pre-harvest sales typically outperform harvest time sales at a pretty, pretty high probability or pretty high percentage of the time. And so that May, June, July time period is a good time to be a seller if you're going to start to establish some of those pre-harvest sales. Let's talk about the tools that uh, a producer would employ in order to get some uh, get some of their bushels priced. So in the toolbox, you open the top and you take a look down. What are the different tools, Luke, that uh, if we want to utilize pre-harvest to price bushels, what are some tools that we can use to do that? There's a lot of those, Chad. <laughs> there can be a lot of different ways to manage your risk. Uh, but if you want to keep it pretty simple, one of the big separators is... I should back up to really understand all the tools. You need to understand the cash equation and it's simple, but the cash price, and this is really elementary producers, producers know this, the cash price you receive is equal to the Chicago board of trade plus your local basis. And so when producers are thinking about the tools in the toolbox, you have to keep that formula in mind. And so probably the biggest separator we can make, uh, is are you making cash sales or are you just managing the futures component of that risk? And that would commonly be called hedging. Uh, when you hear that term, that's that's what we're referring to, is that we're hedging the futures price and we are leaving your basis component of your cash price open. And so those are two of the common tools if you want to separate it is, let's say, Chad, let's say that, let's go back to our soybean example and our break even is $12. And it's uh, it's May 10th, and the price of soybeans on the Chicago Board of Trade is $14.50. You decide that's a great place to be. You can make $2 a bushel. Uh, you check with your local elevator for the harvest time price, and their flat price that day or their cash price is $14 even. 
So the cash price is is fourteen dollars. It's equal to Chicago Board of Trade, which is fourteen fifty, plus a fifty under is what we call fifty cents under uh, November futures produces a, a cash price of fourteen dollars. So one of the tools you can use is a simple cash forward contract, and uh, that's an effective tool. The producer doesn't have to carry any of the margin risk like they would in a hedge account. Uh, their basis is determined, and when your basis is determined, your destination and your delivery time period are determined. So that's one tool. It's very simple. It's the most common. It is the most common contract type used in the grain industry because it's simple. It's easy to understand. As far as hedging goes, you could hedge that same sale. You could just hedge the soybean, um, hedge the soybeans at fourteen fifty, and leave your basis open. You can determine that later. There's a lot of ways you can do that too. You could do that with that same grain elevator. Uh, that is commonly referred to as a hedge to arrive is the industry term. And essentially the co-op or the grain company will hold that hedge on your behalf until you decide to establish a basis on it. Uh, there's typically a service fee associated with that uh, as the cooperative or the grain company carries that hedge on your behalf. Uh, you could also hedge that transaction on your own. Uh, if you have a, a brokerage or a hedge account with a commodity broker, uh, you could hedge that same transaction at 1450, but you have to margin that position. You've got to put money into your account uh, to both satisfy what's called an initial margin requirement. And then as the market moves, you may have to put more money into that position if the Chicago Board of Trade goes against you. And in our example, that would be if soybeans go to $15, you've got to put 50 cents into your account to keep your position liquid. Um, so those are two different ways you can hedge. We see both types used quite often. Um, but cash sales uh, by far would be the most common tool that producers are using in that example. So if you look at uh, either doing a cash sale, you know, a forward cash or uh, or locking in the futures is the other way that you offered there. Is there a difference? I mean, is there if you're a pre-harvest marketer, is it better to set one and let the other and determine the other one later, you know, versus uh, one scenario versus another? You know what I mean? Yeah, great question. It depends. And <laughs> Chad, giving you the economist answer there. Basis, understanding your local basis helps you determine which of those two strategies you should use. That's something that you would have to become familiar with, or your local grain buyer could certainly give you some information about that as well. If your basis is strong, you know, in our example, it's 50 under, right? 50 cents under the board of trade. If you say to yourself, well, shoot, typically harvest basis is 60 under or 65 under. Well, 50 under is better than 60 or 65 under. In that case, you might say, there's no reason for me to keep my basis open because I feel like that's a pretty good number already. Uh, that might lead you to make the cash sale instead of hedging it. On the contrary, if basis was 80 under on the day that soybeans go to 1450, you might say, boy, 80 under sure seems weak relative to where it typically is when I deliver beans in the fall. I'm going to hedge that transaction instead, and I'm going to see if the basis can get a little bit better between now and harvest time. And so having an understanding of your local basis and those patterns is going to help you make those decisions. And uh, the advisors you work with can sure provide some of that information to you too, uh, as a lot of the, you know, the grain industry tracks a lot of that information. So let's say that we've done that. Let's say we've put together our plan and we have our price targets. Um, 
how far out should we be getting started? And then how, how do we track, you know, from whenever we get started, how do we track the progress of a pre-harvest plan up until the combines roll? A good question to ask yourself, Chad, as you, you know, to answer your questions, a key question that we like to ask our producers is what percent of your crop do you want to have marketed before harvest? I think that's a very key question. Um, some farmers will respond and say, well, I don't know, how much should I have sold before harvest? And that really, to me, that gets back to cash flow. Um, if you pay attention to seasonal marketing patterns in the markets, and these, you know, nothing's absolute in grain marketing ever. But we mentioned it earlier that May and June tends to be the best time to market grain. What we would tell producers to answer the how much should I market ahead of time what are your cash flow needs between harvest and April 15th of the next year? Why April 15th? Well, April 15th is kind of when those seasonals start to strengthen. We tend to start seeing better prices about the middle of April through, you know, the 4th of July. If you have enough pre-harvest sales on the books to satisfy your cash flow obligations between harvest and April 15th, you're not going to find yourself in a position where you're backed into a corner in the winter where you have to sell grain because you need cash. And I think that's important. We've heard producers make comments before that they, they say, uh, <laughs> they say, well, I just sell cash when bank, when the banker needs money. I just sell some grain when the banker needs money. You don't want to put yourself in that situation. You want to sell on your terms. You want to sell when the market is in your favor. And so that's how you would determine how much pre-harvest grain to sell. And we would tell you, don't go beyond your insurance limits. So crop insurance is part of the discussion. We haven't mentioned that yet in our discussion. But crop insurance is a really important tool in grain marketing, especially if you are a dry land producer. Uh, irrigated producers tend, tend to have more confidence in what they can grow. And as far as a multi-peril uh, revenue-based insurance policy, it uh, probably doesn't provide as much value to the irrigated producer like it would with the dry land guy. Uh, but anyway, mark it up to your insurance limits if you're comfortable and uh, let cash flow, your cash flow requirements uh, kind of dictate how many pre-harvest sales you need to have in the hopper uh, going into the fall. And then just to kind of round out and make this a complete discussion to fill the last part of the circle, how do we, if we've pre-harvest, if we've got um, some sales or hedges on, like you say, how do we complete the transaction? Sure. So you're, we really transitioned into our post-harvest marketing plan at that point. Um, so you've got to do a couple things. It depends on which tool you utilized when you made those pre-harvest sales. If they were all cash sales, it's pretty easy. You just deliver the grain for the time period that you that you contracted the grain for. If you hedged those sales instead, then what we talk about with our team is we need to manage we need to manage that hedge or manage that position uh, until the basis is established and the grain is delivered, and that involves conversations around. What do the futures spreads look like? What does the basis look like? That's going to dictate what we do with those hedges. So again, go back to that cash equation. Cash is futures plus basis. In our pre-harvest marketing plan, we manage the futures risk. That's done. That's over with. Uh, we did that with a simple hedge or maybe we bought put options or something like that to manage the futures component. But basis is open. So we still have to have a conversation 
about what to do to establish a basis. Um, that's going to give you a lot of flexibility uh, because your destination and your delivery windows open with those. You don't have to deliver those at any set time. You can what we call it, roll the position uh, into a deferred futures month, and that'll allow you to deliver it at a different time period. So in our post-harvest marketing plan, it depends on what tools we utilize to establish pre-harvest sales. And if they were hedges of some kind, then we'll have to manage those hedges to establish a basis at some sort of destination when it fits the rest of our marketing plan around cash flow, logistics, you know, weather plays a part and when we would establish basis on hedges, those types of things. So there's that part of it. Second part of it is you talked about the pie or the pie chart is something we think about. Let's say we sold 60% of our crop pre-harvest. Well, that means 40% of it still needs to be sold. And so if we've matched up pre-harvest sales with cash flow requirements, we might be in a position where we don't have to market that 40% until the following spring when prices start to rally again. Um, so it's really the same process at that point. You know, if you find attractive pricing opportunities on that 40%, you can start to pull the trigger on those bushels as you see fit. You know, we've seen we've seen rallies in December before. That might be an appropriate time to uh, start making sales on that remaining 40% of what would now be old crop, you know, on your farm or maybe at the elevator. How do we ass assess the success of our pre-harvest marketing plan? I feel like that's a subjective question, Chad, because I think everyone will define success differently. Uh, they would answer that question differently. Um, if you're super uh, ROI focused, return on, on investment focused, uh, then your measuring stick might be profitability. Is my income greater than my expenses? Um, if I knew I was going to spend, you know, $900 an acre in our soybean example, a 10% return on investments, $90 an acre profit, right? Probably depends on the year. You know, if you have, if you got a year where the markets are pretty wild and they're giving you great opportunities, a 10% return on investment doesn't sound real great when the market gave you an opportunity to make 20%, 30%, something like that. So it really, it really depends. I think it depends on the producer and how they're wired in terms of what success looks like. Uh, I think leverage is an important part of the conversation too when determining success. You know, compare, I'll, I'll pick two end, two extremes in this example. You've got the young producer. We all know, we all know them. You know, they're getting started out and farming is a capital intensive business. Uh, it takes a lot of cash to get things rolling. And so a young producer is not going to have a cash or an equity position. So their cost of production is going to be higher. And compare that to maybe that young producer's grandfather who's been farming for a lot of years. Uh, he's earned it. He has equity in his uh, maybe the ground that he farms and now owns. And his cost of production is going to be quite a bit lower. Those two producers are motivated very differently when it comes to grain marketing. Uh, one of them is probably much more aware of what their cost of production is than the other one. And you can probably guess which one, which one that would be. Okay, I think that's a good place to end part one of today's conversation. Join us for part two as we break down post-harvest marketing strategies. Again, we've been visiting with Luke Beckman, Grain Sales Manager with Central Valley Ag Cooperative. This is Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Seclocha. 
It is written and edited by Alex Wojcicki. Our project manager is Bryce Duskett. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.